0: Welcome to another episode of the Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. Today my guest is Dr. Zachary Dreyfus. Zach is a pulmonary critical care physician, which don't feel bad if you had to look that up because I did also, but essentially that means that Zach deals with disorders of the lungs, specifically in the intensive care unit, which puts him front and center for treating patients and supporting families that have been most affected by COVID-19. And while only a very small percentage of individuals who contract COVID-19 end up being hospitalized, much less end up in the ICU where Zach works, I still found it extremely fascinating and extremely compelling to listen to Zach as he opened up about taking on the most severe cases of COVID in an environment of complete uncertainty. In which he'll describe as an environment that still largely exists today. Obviously, this is a serious subject. The conversation does get weighty at times. However, Zach is incredibly eloquent, and he's incredibly skilled at breaking down complex medical procedures and medical disorders into language we can all understand, but he's also talented at delivering it in a manner that I think is really comforting. And regardless of your profession or your expertise or your personal experience with COVID or your personal views on COVID, I think we can all really relate to the emotions that he describes, and I think we can all find something to take away from an objective description of events that are taking place in the ICU and the things that he's seen both in and outside of the hospital. Zach, I just want to thank you for your time, buddy. I want to thank you for your honesty. I want to thank you for the work that you do and the service you provide to our community. This conversation was educational. It was eye-opening. It was thought-provoking. And I really, really enjoyed it and appreciate the time that you gave me. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Zachary Dreyfus. buddy i I appreciate you joining me i'm thoroughly interested to hear what you went through and what you're still going through and i i think it's going to be a learning experience for, for us all so i appreciate you you joining me yeah absolutely no i mean uh
1: I I guess the uh, the athlete part I'm still missing. I peaked in about uh, middle school, but uh, mental
0: athlete still still going strong. <laughs> well, that's okay. You could make a strong argument that I'm not much of an athlete anymore either. But uh, I try. So why don't we start here, Zach? You're a critical pulmonary care physician. So why don't we just start by describing your profession, your specialty, your background a bit, and explaining what that is. Yeah, Clay, I'm a pulmonary critical care physician,
1: and that's a physician that deals with disorders of the lung, as well as patients that are generally um, extremely sick uh, that end up in the uh, intensive care unit. There's a lot of overlap. So it's actually what we call a combined fellowship where uh, after you do your residency training, which is kind of your basic, either surgically based or internal medicine based, you can subspecialize. And so I did a three year extra fellowship dealing and getting certified and dealing with the lungs disorders in the uh, ICU patients, because a lot of times patients in the ICU are on ventilators. And so there's a lot of overlap. And one of the most common diagnoses is acute respiratory failure. And an intensive care unit doctor usually has to have some form of expertise in uh, running the ventilator. And obviously it's uh, a machine that has a lot to do with the lungs. And so there's a lot of overlap. So I, I always like taking care of uh, sick patients. Uh, my wife's an OBGYN. She likes taking care of healthy patients. And I just found dealing with patients that are really sick, I felt like not only could I help them through what is usually one of the most stressful periods of their life, but I'm also there for the families. And I find it really challenging because I, as an ICU doctor, you're kind of what we call the attending of record, or you're the you're the kind of the head doctor of the team. You're not just a consultant, and so everyone's kind of looking to you as kind of the making the game plan for the or the care plan for the patient. And I get a lot out of that in terms of when I'm dealing with other consultants, they're just focused solely on one organ system, and I kind of like having that continuity where I'm still seeing the same you know generally list of patients every day. I really liked, you know, the idea of being an ER doctor growing up, and I have a lot of respect for those guys because they deal with a whole different world. But an ER doctor, you know, you touch the patient once and then you kind of triage them and then you're transferring their care to somebody else. And so I like the idea of kind of having that continuity of dealing with the same patient every day and establishing a relationship with them. And that's why we all went into medicine is to, of course, to help people. but. When I'm doing, you know, sometimes clinic work or outpatient-based medicine, when I have a patient and they're doing all of their, their medications, they're taking all all of their medications on time and their inhalers, they say, hey, doc, I feel fine. I was like, well, okay, I, I don't really have anything to add. Just just keep up the good work. I find it more challenging when someone's coming in, you know, really sick and there's a lot of different things that you can do. And with ICU medicine, there is a lot of physiology that's changing from hour to hour. And you can kind of really see your work or really see your therapeutics or your interventions, seeing if they're having an effect in as little as like 20 minutes. Whereas when you see an outpatient doctor, they say, hey, you you know, if you look good or let's try this. I'll see you in four months. So I like kind of being able to see the patients multiple times, talking to the families, kind of having that treatment relationship. So that's kind of what drew me to critical care medicine.
0: I think that's a beautiful answer, because one of the things we're going to get into later is your experience with COVID, where you're dealing with critically ill patients. But beyond that, you're functioning as a psychologist, if you will. You're having to deal with more than just the underlying treatment. You have to deal with families and families that actually can't be present, which we'll certainly get into later. Before we get into your experience with COVID-19 and the pandemic, I want to talk a bit about what COVID-19 is. So why don't you take us to school a little bit and tell us what a coronavirus is and then elaborate on what makes COVID-19 different from other common respiratory illnesses.
1: Sure. So COVID-19 is a coronavirus and a coronavirus is just a common cold. Now, just like any virus, it's governed by the laws of nature. And so it will mutate to find better ways to become more efficient. And this so happened, of course, happened in Wuhan, China. And we're still not exactly sure about the origin, but it just happened to re- mutate enough so that it wasn't just a viral, you know, prodrome illness where it was just a cough and sniffles. It started to have more severe symptoms. And uh, we all know it kind of happened in 2019, but it is a virus that can affect not just the lungs, but multiple different organ systems. The most common one is the lungs, and most viruses, if not all viruses, cause some sort of inflammation. So it starts off a cascade where your body is trying to defend itself, but when it's trying to defend itself, it's producing all these different little antigens, antibodies, what we can start to call cytokines, which are kind of signals that develop inside the body in response to a a viral illness. And that kind of ramps up your body to kind of start producing more of this response. And it's kind of what we call a vicious cycle. So while it's generally favorable, it doesn't have the tools to necessarily combat a new novel viral strain. And so it keeps happening, keeps happening. And that leads to a lot of inflammation in the lungs. Which is why people become shorter breath, because the lungs are or these huge. If you were to spread out the lungs, they're you know the size of a tennis court in terms of all the tiny sacks that are involved. And a lot of those sacks become damaged, and so you don't have as much good real estate, or a lot of that tennis court is kind of ruined, and so you're doing more of the work that the body needs with a smaller version of that tennis court. And so to make up for that, you start to breathe faster. And the lungs themselves The way that we breathe is with negative pressure. So you have the big diaphragm at the very bottom. And so that muscle can get tired over time, just like any other muscle in the human body. So when you're breathing faster and faster, eventually that muscle can start to fatigue. And then you start to use other muscles that aren't usually involved. And those are kind of a safety gap measure. You know, if you've done a lot of aerobic activity, you're panting, you know, you're kind of just letting the body try to relax and kind of recover but it never does, and so what eventually happens is, is that you start breathing faster and faster, you start taking in less and less air, and that causes your oxygen levels to drop. And that's when people start to come to the hospitals when you know, they notice that their symptoms aren't getting better, they're more fatigued, they're shorter breath, they have a cough. But it doesn't just affect the lungs, we're also seeing that COVID-19 can cause people to become what we call prothrombotic, which means they are more likely to have blood clots. And we've seen blood clots happen in the lungs, the legs, and we've even seen pretty severe strokes um, that are due to COVID. And uh, they can form a you know a debilitating stroke, and especially in the uh, young population, we've seen people that you know don't have any coexisting conditions, but they can come in with a stroke that you normally see in an 85-year-old. So it's we're still learning a lot about it, but it it really can affect multiple different organs. The top two are the the brain in the lungs, and the third being uh, the heart, where a lot of patients we've seen with uh, young healthy athletes is myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the cardiac tissue, which generally gets better over time, but it can still cause a pretty significant chest discomfort.
0: Why are the effects so drastically different with each individual? We know people that don't even know they have it, and some are killed by the virus. And maybe this is more common than I think it is. Maybe a lot of viruses have drastic outcomes.
1: Yeah, Clay, I don't have a great answer to that because I I deal with sometimes families, multiple family members in my intensive care unit. And the story will be, well, I got it and then she got it, but I don't know why she's in the ICU and I'm here talking to, you know, to a family member that's completely fine and just had you know no real symptoms besides maybe a few days of, just not feeling well. And we don't really know. We know that there are pre-existing conditions such as hypertension, you know, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. Those patients are more at risk, but generally that's because they have a harder time fighting off infections. But we still don't have a great idea about why it affects certain populations different than others. And what's really scary is, or I guess reassuring is, that it doesn't affect pediatric patients nearly as much and there's some talk of, oh, they don't have a certain receptor uh, in their nose, that then that's what causes the virus to, to enter and start to replicate so much. But it's Even to me, it's, it's really difficult to understand about why it affects some people completely different than others. And you generally don't see that with other viruses. Now, the, the influenza virus or the flu virus, you can certainly see that, but we never have seen it to this scope where it's affecting this many number of patients.
0: Well, let's get a bit into your story and maybe some personal anecdotes. So take me back to let's say late 2019, early 2020. How did you first become aware of the virus? Just like most everybody
1: else, in terms of just started watching, you know, the news or just kind of seeing news reports just about a new virus. And, you know, we didn't really know a lot about it. And certainly Partly because it was coming out of China, and there's not a great deal of, uh, I guess, outgoing research that is usually shared with other physicians worldwide. And I remember being on vacation and, and looking at the TV and saying, "Oh, okay, it's, you know, this was like January, I think." I was like, "Oh, that's weird. There's this new uh, virus out there. I wonder what's going to happen, you know, when it gets to America." I mean, I'm sure it's going to cause something, but you know, what I was reading at the time was saying, "Oh, it'll it'll be no worse than the flu. and We can deal with that." and It'll be very weird, but it shouldn't be that big of an issue. And and obviously, uh, I was quite wrong.
0: Yeah, it seems like most everyone was cut off guard. But as I think about it, I'm not sure there is another outcome when no one has ever seen this particular virus before. And even when we do know the steps to take, that's still a long way from doing something about it, which we saw in real time. Just the logistics alone are challenging, to say the least. What are some of the obstacles you hit early on, whether they be logistical and PPE or just knowledge-based?
1: Yeah, so I was, uh, or I still am involved on, you know, multiple committees where we sit down from a hospital system perspective. And uh, I remember in the very early days, you know, we knew it was coming. Uh, We knew that it had already, you know, come into Washington State first and, A lot of the literature that doctors read, it has to be what we call peer reviewed. It's gone over multiple times, multiple edits. I mean, I'm still submitting some of my own research, and it can take months, if not years, for it to get fully published. And so, you know, we were relying on, I remember social media. There were, you know, there was a Facebook group of a bunch of doctors that were kind of getting together, at least in the DFW area, saying, okay, well, who's got a patient? What have you seen that works? And it was all a, it was kind of like a game of telephone. Well, I have a friend, I have a friend, I have a friend who's here. And, you know, this is what they saw. And we all kind of had a kind of the same cheat sheet that was produced by a few doctors out, out in the Seattle area at the University of Washington. And that was kind of like all we had. We said, okay, well, this is what a normal chest x-ray for COVID looks like. Here's what we found is working or isn't working. Here's what we think we should do. Here's what we think, you know, a lot of it, it was just so uncertain and we didn't know exactly what to do. But at the same time, as a, as a critical illness physician, Uh, What we specialize in is is multiple organ failure. And our job is to kind of keep everything going. And so that's where, you know, we can talk about the ventilators and the dialysis machines. And so the whole idea is, okay, well, we'll just put them on a ventilator. We'll support their body and we'll wait for this to kind of to pass. And dealing with the, uh, from the hospital system, it was a question in the very beginning of, well, how contagious is this? Who's going to take care of these patients? Do we have the nurses to take care of these patients? Are we going to isolate them in a specific area? Are we going to build a new containment area? Are we going to you know, move patients around? And we were caught not off guard in the Dallas area, but we were just kind of following about where the cases were popping up and when they were going to pop up. And when our first patient came to our hospital system in Dallas, we were definitely caught off guard. But at the same time, remember, testing was so novel back then that we were getting the Department of Health involved. And it was up to the clinician who had never seen this virus before to say, well, I think this looks like it. I'm not really sure. Does this meet your criteria for us to test this patient? Meanwhile, you're dealing with lots of people that are afraid to even deal with you. So while I'm waiting for the department of health to get back to me the patient is in isolation and you're trying to tell them that everything's going to be okay but we don't know what's going on and so i mean they can definitely see that things are are different and so in the beginning there was a you know a, a very beginning there was a huge ppe shortage and that was you know i remember being in meetings talking about well we have five days worth of, you know at our at this consumption level we have five days left And uh, we're then going to be, you know, relying on donations from the community, donations from other hospital systems. And it was pretty scary. I mean, it was, you know, the N95 mask, which, you know, I use for my tuberculosis patients because that's the same type of isolation as coronavirus. I'm used to taking that off for each patient and then just, you know, throwing in the trash can. And then you're being told, okay, you need to save that mask because you're probably going to get one just for the entire shift. And, uh, oh, don't touch it. So it was a, a definitely a new experience in terms of wearing extended-use PPE that was usually meant for a one-time use.
0: Listening to you speak, I'm here to talk to you about the medical issues, but immediately it turns into an administrative nightmare, it turns into a logistical nightmare, and you have doctors doing things that maybe they've never done before. I mean, I I doubt it's a doctor's responsibility to be running a spreadsheet to figure out how many days of PPE we have left, but yet this has to be done. Another thing I wanted to ask you about the very beginning of that thought, you talked about the lack of information. So there's no data exchange, national data exchange. You, You were using a Facebook group, which seems to me to be extremely rudimentary. Is that due to patient privacy laws or why is there not some sort of large data exchange or mechanism where doctors can communicate with each other real time
1: well we do have you know large organizations that come out with guidelines but these guidelines are vetted you know over multiple meetings and just even some of the simple things that we do every day they still argue about how best to treat for instance a blood clot in the leg When we talk about how long to treat it for with blood thinners, there are multiple sides to the art, you know, to that argument. And they'll sit for, like I said, multiple committee meetings at a time to kind of decide and then they'll publish their findings. Whereas we didn't have that. And these usually these types of cases would be at the NIH in Washington, DC. They'd be in a special lab where you know there's a special biocontainment area at the University of Nebraska and Omaha. And that's where they, you know, initially took a lot of the patients for Ebola. But this was spreading so much faster. And there wasn't any therapeutics that were that were made for COVID. And there generally aren't very many therapeutics in the antiviral category. So it was more of the fact that other physicians were trying to figure out which ways can we see, which ways can we connect with other doctors in our discipline. And and certainly our network of pulmonary critical care doctors, there's not that many of us nationwide. I mean, it's such a niche area of medicine that is, you know, super subspecialized, but there's not like a big group chat room necessarily, <laughs> I guess, uh, on some of our bigger organizations. So that's why we kind of relied on on social media in terms of, you know, it wasn't like we were posting, uh, I mean, these were like private groups that we were just kind of, you know, sharing articles that somebody had come across and, I mean, everything was changing so quickly, but people were definitely, and uh, you know, very afraid of of coming into contact with a patient because in some instances you're you're thinking, oh my gosh, if I touch this patient, am I am I going to die?
0: Yeah. And, uh, well, under I understood one of the what I'm hearing you say is there are some mechanisms and networks, but they're just not designed for the timeline we are dealing with, for the pace that this was moving at, which makes perfect sense. Right. Get into the first few severe cases you were encountering. What were you seeing? What were the remedies that were being tried? Why why were these remedies not effective? Why were they effective? What was going on with those first few cases that you were treating?
1: Yeah, so it was interesting but scary story. I took care of uh, the first patient in our hospital system with COVID-19, and it was a patient that was not going out in the community, was staying at home. And remember in the very beginning, the kind of screening criteria we had were, are you going and traveling? Have you been to any of these states? Have you been traveling internationally? And if they hadn't been traveling or if they hadn't really been doing very much, we thought that they were low risk because there wasn't any community transmission yet in the Dallas area. And community transmission is is a type of transmission where you don't have to necessarily travel anywhere, but it's more, it's very prevalent in the community, and you can just get it from, you know, another asymptomatic person. And this person didn't have a fever, didn't have cough, and they were on the on the tenth floor of our hospital. And I got a call as a as a pulmonologist to say, "Hey, this patient's just not doing well. I'd like for you to kind of take a look at them." You know, we got a CAT scan. They're on a, a non-invasive ventilator, which is a which is what we call a bipap mask. And that's a mask that's kind of pushing air in and out because they're already pretty shorter breath. And this patient actually decompensated, had to go to the ICU. I intubated them, put them on the breathing tube, and I actually did a bronchoscopy because their CAT scan had very characteristic signs of what we call ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is a illness that can be caused by bacterial pneumonia, viral pneumonia. It's basically a very severe insult to the lungs. And we were trying to figure out why was this person sick? They had clearly didn't really have any COVID-19 risk factors. And so I did a bronchoscopy, which is where I take a camera and I actually go into the lungs and I took a, you know, a deep sample of the lungs and sent it off to the lab. And that's a very, what we call aerosolizing procedure. I mean, you literally have a breathing tube directly into their lungs, you're popping off a valve, you're popping in a camera in. And so there's, you know, the ventilator is still pushing air in and out. But there's lots of air, if you will, being circulated throughout the room. And then two days later, we get a call that, by the way, this this patient has COVID-19. And that was the very first patient that we had. And so then we had our infection prevention control office involved. And they were having to interview multiple nurses and multiple respiratory therapists and see what their exposure was. Because this patient was not in isolation was on a was on a non invasive ventilator, was having a lot of aerosolizing procedures done. And they had to send home, I think, like twenty five nurses and Mm -hmm. multiple respiratory therapists. But of course, you know, I was wearing an N ninety five at the time, but was I wearing the right eye protection, you know, we weren't sure, but, you know, I was cleared and but it was still a, a pretty risky first exposure, if you will. And I was told, Well, you don't have any symptoms right now. You just continue going to work and we'll see what happens. And that's what I was told on our very first case. Now, in terms of interventions, as ICU doctors, when we don't know what's going on, when we're having a hard time with a patient from a lung function, we're gonna put them on high dose steroids. So that's what we do, is that we put them on high dose steroids, lots of antibiotics for bacterial superinfections, infections, and we just are kind of waiting to see if the body can respond to these treatments because the steroids can decrease the inflammation, But with a lot of these illnesses, we're just waiting for the body to kind of get over it on its own, but support them with the ventilator while going through that recovery process. So we were throwing high dose steroids. We were throwing high dose vitamin D, vitamin C, which we still use today. And we weren't seeing a lot of benefit necessarily. And I mean, I remember in the beginning giving hydroxychloroquine. That was one of the therapeutics that was used in the beginning. But then as we know, the data changed, Uh, there were more trials that were done that didn't show any benefit to the critically ill patients uh, using hydroxychloroquine and that it actually
0: had more adverse effects. So that was kind of taken off the table in terms of uh, early interventions. You mentioned the ventilator a couple of times, and this may be incomplete information or completely wrong information. But one of the things that I've heard is that you want to stay off the ventilator because the body can very quickly become dependent. And then once you get on the ventilator, you can't get off. Is this good information? Is this faulty information? Where do you stand? Yeah, no, I I can
1: definitely go into a lot of detail about that. So a ventilator is obviously a great tool in our arsenal. It is something that can completely let the body relax in terms of the respiratory muscles in the lungs to try to, like I said, to kind of give them more time. But to do that, we have to have the breathing tube that goes into the mouth, down the windpipe, through the vocal cords, you know, into the lungs. And that's really uncomfortable. So the first thing we have to do just to even get you on the ventilator is to have you put into a medically induced coma. And so that has its own side effect of being on multiple medications. But then a ventilator is using positive pressure to force air into the lungs and out of the lungs. Whereas when you and I are breathing, we're kind of inhaling air. We're kind of sucking air into our lungs. And the negative pressure that you and I use isn't that harmful. It's pretty gentle pressure. Whereas when I'm pushing air in with a ventilator, it can definitely cause significant damage. And we know that because we've done lots of studies from the olden days showing, you know, they are actually taking pieces of lung tissue and showing the damage that grows with each day on a ventilator so while one part is yes they become dependent on the ventilator because their muscles become so tired that by the time their lungs are partially healed their muscles to breathe are so weak that yes they are dependent on the ventilator and then we have to build you up with your muscles every day to try to get you off the ventilator to wean you from the ventilator but at the same time we also know that the positive pressure it can kind of cause huge amounts of microscopic damage, what we call barotrauma, which is trauma from pressure, because we're just giving these, this air under such high pressure, because when people's lungs are sick, their lungs that are usually like sponges can turn rock hard. And so to get the air that they need it need there, they need higher amounts of pressure to get it. And when that happens, if you blow open a balloon too quickly, or with too much pressure, it can pop. And that's a big problem when being on a ventilator is that can cause what we call a pneumothorax, which is really then coming down to battlefield medicine, which is where then I have to take a plastic catheter or what we call a chest tube. And then I have to insert that into the lung cavity to then re-expand the lung. So it's a really uncomfortable procedure and it's pretty traumatic because there's a reason that we're made with a rib cage which is to protect all our vital organs, then I'm having to go in there and bypass all these layers of security just to kind of reinflate. So the ventilator is not necessarily the be-all and end-all in terms of the
0: treatment. It's definitely got some really nasty side effects. Okay, so it's a great tool, but it has to be used carefully, and maybe it's not designed to be used for long periods of time. Is that fair? Yes, exactly. So the, the big issue
1: with COVID is, is that A lot of patients, they're sick for so long and the body is only meant to be on, you know, what I call high vent settings because the ventilator, I have multiple different modes. I have multiple different dials. I mean, there are a bazillion different things that I can change on a ventilator. And even then, even if I have them on quote unquote, the safest settings, people are still at high risk and you just can't be dependent on artificial life support for long periods of time. So, you know, what I tell a lot of my patients is, is that the easy thing is getting you anybody on a ventilator. I can do that. That's what we do all the time. The hard part for my COVID-19 patients is getting them off the ventilator. And a lot of times I'm putting them on the ventilator, but they're not coming off.
0: Yeah, that's scary. That's scary. Well, let's talk a little bit about those early days and the flattening of the curve, which is a term we all learned in 2020. In your opinion, was the medical system, at least in your network, completely overwhelmed or on the verge if we didn't shut down? Were we seeing the beginnings of our facilities begin to be overrun? So we were definitely overrun, and we still are overrun today.
1: Our healthcare system, for better or for worse, is designed to take care of lots of people. But when those resources are stretched to capacity, And part of that is because COVID-19, at least in the ICU or even on the medical wards, it's not like any other illness where usually the average length of stay is three or four days and then they move out and they can make room for more patients. It's the fact that each patient can take, you know, sometimes an ICU bed for up to a month, you know, a month and a half. And every time you add one, you're not getting rid of necessarily others that are able to to get better or to kind of what we call downgrade to a normal floor. So they're taking up precious, you know, resources, precious space. And the whole idea of the lockdowns was to just kind of limit the spread because we knew that the spread was still going to happen, but we just wanted to have the resources to take care of everyone and anyone that needed care. And it was definitely... You know, we just didn't know what in the beginning. So we, you know, we were locked down, but right now we're in Delta and we're not locked down and we're kind of seeing the same effects. We're not really sure if the lockdowns have had the greatest impact. We don't have to get into the whole economy. I'm just going to speak from the healthcare perspective, but certainly when we wanted to flatten the curve, it's just more of the, we know that patients are still going to maybe get affected, but maybe if we can have it happen over a longer period of time, that will help the healthcare system be able to have space so that if you need us, we're there for you.
0: Oh, I think that's very helpful. I mean, I I work in the logistics industry and we operate ports. And for you to tell it that way kind of paints a great picture for me because ports are designed to be revolving doors. Things are designed to come in and go out, come in and go out. And it doesn't take much to upset that apple cart. If something sits longer than it's supposed to, the entire system can get shut down or grind to a standstill very quickly. So the picture you painted there was very helpful for me. We've been talking about uncertainty quite a bit, and I want to dig in there and get your thoughts on uncertainty. I read an article that you participated in about the challenges of treating COVID-19, which is a lot about that you're trained in evidence-based medicine and therapies that have been proven to work, yet we had no data on the best way to fight COVID-19. So you're experimenting, you're taking educated guesses, and that can be very, very scary. Put me in the mental space of a doctor trying to tackle a virus and having no data and not knowing how to tackle it. What are you thinking?
1: Yeah, so being an ICU doctor, I'm used to getting patients not just from the ER, um, but patients that also are coming from the medical ward. So they're under the care of just you know, what we call a hospitalist or just a general internal medicine doctor. And let's say their interventions are not working. You know, they're coming to me and saying, Hey, Dr. Dreyfus, this patient's getting worse. I've done X, Y, and Z. I think they need a higher level of care. They need, you know, their begin their, their body's beginning to shut down. I need your help. And so that's what I'm here for. But at the same time, I'm looking at them saying, Well, you know, you've done all the things that I'm gonna do. I, I don't really know what else I can offer them. And it's it's really scary because then the families are saying, Well, we're in the ICU. This is where the sickest patients are. You're going to, you're going to fix everything. Right. And I believe in being brutally honest with my patients and their families. It's really hard for me to sugarcoat things when they're this sick. And it was really hard because with a lot of the interventions that we do, it's not that our medicines aren't be all and end all's, but still the body is an amazing thing. And the fact that as long as you generally support it people can get better. And I've dealt with so many different types of illnesses where we have people that come into the ICU every month. If we can just give them time with our therapeutics, they will get better. And with COVID-19, you know, in the very beginning, we were throwing everything at them. I mean, We were just throwing so many different medications, interventions to kind of get them better. And as the cases went up, it just wasn't working and it's still not really working. And it's become so deflating in terms of a patient's family is looking to you, a complete stranger that they don't know. And they're trusting you to get them better, or at least help them understand what's going on. And you've, given this speech, you know, a thousand times and still every time the family is looking at you saying, well, I don't understand why X, Y, and Z isn't working. And you have to be honest and say, with COVID-19, it's it's a whole new ballgame. And it and it still is. Because at least in the, from the ICU perspective, we still don't have many interventions that are really beneficial at our stage. I mean, for the most part, I can say that about The people that go on a ventilator, I'd say uh, about 90% don't come off the ventilator at all. And that is a crazy statistic. And But still, you still have 10% of people that can potentially come off. And so everybody wants to be one of those one in 10. But that's a lot of losses for very few wins. And that's what we're still experiencing in the ICU today. And that's, oh, and you know, that's where the whole burnout issue is coming into effect and, and whatnot.
0: Well, I definitely want to get there. It has to be completely disheartening. And this, this may come across callous, but I, I recently read a book called The Emperor of All Maladies, which is a biography of cancer. And it points out that for many advanced cancer patients, the experimental treatments they are taking are highly unlikely to save them. And the doctors know this. But by going through the process, they are likely saving a future cancer patient. And it just occurred to me listening to you that there may be some parallels there in COVID-19. And like I said, that's a bit callous for those that are losing their lives to save a future patient. But there may be some parallels there and maybe some solace they can take that maybe you're learning something that's going to save a future patient. One of the things that, and I don't want to get overly morbid, we'll move on after this, but one of the things that is really difficult for me to think about is the no visitors policy for someone who's close to the end of life, which I know at some point there is a short visitation, but for the most part, someone's coming to the end of their life and there's no visitors allowed, meaning they're dying alone. And that has to be a different level of heartbreaking. I can't imagine that there's any way to prepare for that. How are you guys dealing with that in the hospital?
1: So, end of life has always that is part of what I deal with on an everyday basis and before COVID-19, I could have the whole family in the room. You know, I could have a whole meeting with the family, I could talk about what to expect, you know, what we're going to kind of do. And now when a patient is dropped off in the ER, they may not see their loved one again. And a lot of times with COVID, it's just something that kind of builds over time. A lot of my patients aren't coming from the ER. They're coming because they went from the ER to the you know regular hospital bed. They didn't get better, you know, maybe after 10 days. And it just slowly got worse and worse and worse. And during that time, they can't have visitors. And then on the 15th day, they get moved to the ICU. And then I'm having to talk with them about Do they want to go on a ventilator? And if they do go on a ventilator, I have to be honest with them. I tell them, you need to talk to your family because this could be the last time that you can talk to them while you're able to kind of still breathe a few words at a time. And it's heartbreaking because you're because you're offering a therapy that we know probably isn't going to have a great outcome but patients still want to go through it and that can still prolong this phase while they're alive. But since they're in that coma, they they're not able to communicate with their families. And then the families we have set up other adjuncts. So, you know, a lot of our hospitals, we have iPads that are kind of scheduled throughout that you can schedule a visit with the nurse and then we can have the iPad set up right at the bedside and you can tell your family member that you love them. And that takes it to a whole different level. while they see that patient in that position, you know, being very vulnerable, not able to communicate, then I'm then having a discussion about, okay, how long would this person want to be on the ventilator? Do they want to be on the ventilator possibly for the rest of their life or for, you know, months or years? Or if they're getting worse, I'm telling them there is a period of time, I think, where allowing the families to come visit to say goodbye in person may help bring some closure, and I tell these patients that I'm not necessarily giving up hope for their loved one at all, but I just want to treat them in a different way, and that's where we talk about the palliative approach or what we call comfort care approach, which is where if we know someone's not going to get off the ventilator, then we talk with the family, and we come to a decision that the best thing for this for this family member would be to this person would not want to live on a ventilator and we would take them off the ventilator and they would pass away. And we do allow families to come in. But of course, there's also a a limitation on the terms of the number of visitors. Because where that comes from is is that we're trying to protect hospital staff, also the patients, because they're going into a room where, you know, the type of PP that I wear, you know, it's been tested. It I make sure it fits a certain way. Whereas Any other person that walks in there doesn't necessarily have that guarantee of, of being checked off on making sure they know how to wear proper, you know, high level PPE. And so then they're at risk of of contracting the virus and we want to limit that. And so a lot of times we're limiting it up to two to four people. But what happens if you have a a husband that has a wife that had then has four kids or five kids? Then you have to tell them, well, I need you guys to pick X number of people then to come visit. And it's, it's heartbreaking. And I'm the voice at the other end of that phone call, and I understand what I'm saying, and it's still hard to this day. And you have to understand, people are going to be feeling a lot of different emotions at that time. And I'm not the one that makes the rules, but I'm, of course, the one that's delivering what are the current guidelines and it's it just adds another level of stress to the family because they haven't seen their family member usually in a month, or they've just gotten so bad so quickly that it's coming you know out of nowhere, and you're giving them the worst news of their life, and I hang up the phone and I have to make you know another five calls just like that
0: Wow, wow, man. Well, outside the hospital, after hearing that you you have to be dealing with fear, exhaustion, anxiety, maybe some hopelessness. How is this affecting you and what are your remedies for dealing with that? Do you have people in your network you can talk to in the hospital? How is that set up to make sure that you're well-prepared to deal with this and it doesn't affect you outside the hospital or at least affects you as little as possible?
1: No, so... uh Yeah, so I'm married. I have two kids, so I really, you know, just concentrate on family life and just enjoying the little things. And I, you know, I tell people what I do for a living, and and they have, you know, the exact same reactions. Wow, I don't know how you can do it, and it has never bothered me, and it still doesn't bother me because I see it as a, you know, I really as a calling to be there for these patients and and a lot of times their families. But the way I deal with it is is for some, somehow it's, I'm just able to wash it all off at the end of the day and I'm able just to come home and focus on family life and just spending time with the kids and talking with friends and, you know, just kind of living the normal, I guess the normal day to day activities. But in the beginning it was, uh, you know, with the lockdowns that, you know, it was really isolating for, for a lot of people because. Even then, I would come home, and I didn't really have many people to talk to. And if people were, you know, getting together, because we didn't really know how contagious it was, you know, we were actively being disinvited to different functions. So that was like a whole other level of, of uh, you know, my daughter wasn't going to people's birthday parties because they knew that their dad was an ICU doctor, and so trying to explain that to my kid was uh, really hard. It was, and it still is, you know, definitely difficult, but I think it's just trying to have some, for me, it's things to look forward to. So I help coach my my daughter's soccer team. So just having things like that to look forward to just kind of puts everything into perspective and just to really treasure my time with my friends and family.
0: Well, I think it takes a special person. I go back to the initial question where you talked about sort of being born for this, some sort of innate ability where you have some qualities that allows you to not only deal with it, but to be there for families. And I think that that's a pretty special thing. And the fact that you recognize that, and, you know, as you put it, you like dealing with, with illness, you know, how to deal with it. You know, how to offer the, the comfort and the, uh, what's the word you use the, uh, Brutal honesty to these families in a way that it can be swallowed. I think that's a pretty special thing. Well, let's move forward a little bit. I appreciate you sharing those stories. Those are powerful, buddy. Mm -hmm. Delta, talk about the differences with Delta. Is it any more dangerous? I know it's more contagious, but what I've been reading is that, that although more people are having it, the percentages of people that are having severe illnesses or children deal with dealing with it, that it doesn't seem to be more, more dangerous. Is this correct? What do we know about Delta?
1: So, yes, we do know that Delta is uh, way more contagious, and we're not necessarily sure that it's causing as severe of disease. But the big issue that, you know, we're dealing with our community and nationwide is that we know that, people that are affected with Delta that are unvaccinated can have much severe disease compared to the uh, alpha strain, if you will. And my demographic has shifted from the beginning, which was people with a lot of existing comorbidities, the elderly, and I have a fairly high mix now, ranging from, you know, the 20s up to the 80s. Whereas before the people that were in my ICU were generally in their 50s to 80s, but now I'm dealing with people that are in their 20s with not very many health conditions, at least conditions that wouldn't normally make them end up in the ICU. So it's kind of a tale of, it's, I mean, it's definitely a different strain, but we have the, the vaccine, which has certainly helped in terms of severe hospitalization. But my ICU is pretty much 90%, those that are unvaccinated. So it's kind of hard to tell what happens if I had had this with everyone that was unvaccinated. Would it affect people differently um, compared to the alpha strain? But I can definitely say that it's more infectious and it affects at least a subset of population a lot more severely.
0: Yeah, the number I heard quoted on the news was something like over 99% of ICU patients are unvaccinated. So I think the, the lesson there is go out and get vaccinated for sure. Yes. (laughs) Is your thought that for those that are high risk, that some variant of COVID will always be a danger. This is just a reality of the new world we now live in.
1: Yeah, it's, I already know about multiple other mutations that are coming down the line. The question is, is will they affect the population like they are right now? Because remember, coronavirus, the original coronavirus was the common cold. So I do think this is going to be around for a while, but we have to learn how to live with it. And I think it's really coming down to taking calculated risk. And I'm not saying we're going to be in mass forever. I'm not saying that the earth is going to stop turning. but I deal with healthcare. So I'm used to dealing with things that are always around. So I still deal with HIV. I still deal with AIDS. I still deal with, you know, very bad hepatitis C and very bad flu. So I'm hoping that it doesn't affect the community as much as it has in terms of the prevalence of COVID-19 compared to the other illnesses that we deal with. But yes, I do think it is going to be here for a while.
0: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned calculated risk. I think speaking maybe more honestly than I should here, we are, as a family, largely careful and cautious wherever we go. However, I also function knowing that for me and my family being young and healthy and fit, that the risk of severe illness is extremely low. And so reconciling that fact with our behaviors is sometimes difficult and what risk makes sense for us, doesn't make sense for others. And it becomes a little difficult what do you tell young, healthy families yeah no, i mean i I
1: think the first thing I tell them is to get the is to get vaccinated, and then I think, yes, as a young, healthy family, I think that as long as you like I said taking those risks about what you're comfortable with is is certainly something that you should totally be able to make your own decision on. I think it gets a little bit more complicated though, because a lot of you know with what we know, a lot of patients can be completely asymptomatic, so the other question is, is how often are you interacting with people that are not so healthy? And that usually comes down to how often are you seeing the grandparents? And it's one of those double-edged swords where absolutely, I want you to live your life. I want you to be able to do things. I want to, you know, because I certainly think we got to keep the kids happy and keep the parents happy because they're just going to go insane if you're just locking them down all the time. <laughs> but I think it's, uh I think we have to be a little bit more careful in terms of well, is this really worth the risk? And everyone's going to have a different threshold. But at the same time, I'm watching college football games on TV, and I see like these stadiums are packed, and it's not like I'm seeing a direct correlation between you know that huge packed team and then I'm getting a, a bunch of a bunch of uh, patients. So my viewpoint's a little bit skewed because I'm seeing the worst of the worst. So I'm going to be a little bit more cautious than maybe than maybe others. But that doesn't
0: mean I'm going to stop living my life. Well, Zach, man, this has been. Hopefully, it's not uh, too morbid <laughs> or depressing or whatever. But I think it was an absolute learning experience and certainly thought-provoking, man. I appreciate you being so open with us. I think this is this is going to be interesting for people. Sure. Yeah. No. Happy to do it.